From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Where's the line between stalking, as defined by state law, and protected speech under the First Amendment? The U.S. Supreme Court this week takes up a Colorado case. It involves a singer-songwriter who got hundreds of thousands of messages from an obsessed fan. The messages were incoherent, too angry, too extremely threatening. Several times he mentioned seeing me in person. Coles Whalen saw her stalker go to prison. She thought the case was settled, only to see the highest court in the land take it up. Our justice reporter, Allison Sherry, is one of the few journalists Whalen has spoken to, and we'll share that interview along with analysis of the case. Plus, another Colorado case as Dominion Voting Systems lashes back at Fox News. Hi, I'm Veronica Penny, CPR's data reporter. Life in Colorado is changing. People are living through more wildfires, smoke pollution, and drought, and less reliable winter snowpack. And the science behind our changing climate is evolving in real time. As a data journalist, my job is to explain that science to you, so you have the tools to make informed decisions in your daily life. Support in-depth solutions-based climate reporting today at CPR.org climate. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The U.S. Supreme Court will hear testimony Wednesday in a Colorado free speech case. The court will decide whether certain kinds of stalking, like threats on social media, are protected under the First Amendment. A singer-songwriter who received hundreds of thousands of messages from the same individual is at the heart of this case. You will meet her today, thanks to CPR Justice reporter Allison Sherry, who joins us before heading to Washington for oral arguments. Hi, Allison. Hi, Rye. Give us a rundown of the case. So I'll start this story with Coles Whalen. I'm Coles Whalen. I'm a singer, songwriter, musician toured the entire United States and the world playing music, and I've worked for over 10 years to build my music career. She opened for big acts like Joan Jett, Pat Benatar. She was playing, as a early singer-songwriter does, any gig she could get, music festivals, sort of charity shows, anything. In about 2010, she began receiving messages from Billy Ray Counterman. She thought they were a little suspicious. They felt creepy. She never responded. She often blocked him, and then he'd create a new account and send her more. His messages made it clear that he believed that we were in a romantic relationship over all of those years. The messages were incoherent, too angry, too extremely threatening. Several times he mentioned seeing me in person, asking if I had had a nice time out with my mother or with my partner, telling me that I looked stunning that day. And uh, I became very afraid that I was being followed. You mentioned that she had blocked him and he would find new ways to reach out. I gather then he was doing this electronically versus like leaving messages on her car. That's exactly right. He was sending them, I think, mostly through Facebook, maybe a couple of other social platforms, but I think mostly Facebook. But it's a very good distinction. And I'm glad you asked because, you know, the Internet makes it so easy to message people now. You don't have to drive to their house or know their landline to contact someone. He was, as she said in there, saying things like he'd seen her, though, right? He'd mentioned a car she had. He mentioned that she looked good the night before when she was performing. And so that does come up in the debate on this, that 
what is saying something versus doing something? And is it electronic is the same as knowing that he was in front of her house, leaving Mm. her a message on her door? After years of these messages, sometimes escalating, Coles decided to call the police. I learned that this man had been arrested twice previously for threatening and harassing other women. The detective on the case was extremely worried about my safety. He advised me to vary my routes around town and uh, suggested that I get a weapon to carry with me for personal protection, which I did. After never having owned a gun before, I took a concealed carry permit and I carried a gun. And I had to emotionally prepare myself to use this gun on a man that I thought might approach me at any minute. So police eventually arrest him, and he lived in Denver at the time. Counterman's now 61 years old. He was convicted in 2016 in Arapahoe County Court and served two years in prison and another year on parole for stalking Coles Whalen. Well, that feels a little bit like the end of the story. I mean, how does a seven-year-old stalking case then go to the U.S. Supreme Court, Allison? So he goes to prison. His public defenders appeal this decision to the state's court of appeals. They end up arguing, the public defenders end up arguing, that this is a free speech issue, a First Amendment case. Notable because Colorado has been something of a a reservoir for free speech cases that make it to the high court. Yes, it's actually pretty remarkable. This is the second First Amendment free speech case from Colorado to be heard in front of this Supreme Court this term. Back to the counterman Coles case. The public defenders say that his messages weren't welcome. They acknowledge that. They don't say that it was valuable speech or anything, but that Billy Ray Counterman was never going to hurt Coles Whalen, that he never made any explicit threats against her, even though some of the messages were bad, including that she should die. They also say he had a mental illness and that even though she was perceiving danger, he did not understand or intend for any of those messages to be a threat. Mm. A fascinating conversation then to be had about intention versus how something might be received. So what did the state appeals court say? Well, they'd agreed with the state's decision to convict him. And so they technically sided with Colorado's state law. The public defenders then appealed to the state Supreme Court. They didn't take it up. They leave it to the Court of Appeals decision. Mm -hmm. It kind of feels like at that point it's done. Then the public defenders appeal the case directly to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court grants cert earlier this year. And it was, to say the least, a very big surprise to all the parties involved. Yeah. Why is that? Explain that. Well, it's so very rare for the U.S. Supreme Court to take a case from a lower state Supreme Court, and it's even more rare to take a case from the, a lower court than that, which is the State Court of Appeals. Um, but I think the thinking is, you know, I'm not a constitutional scholar, but I think the thinking is they've never really settled on this issue, on what is threatening speech, what is the line on the First Amendment, you know, because we know that not all speech is free. You can't go into a crowded movie theater and yell fire. Mm. So what is the line on threatening speech and fighting words? And I think they probably thought this was a very good case to take up on trying to settle that issue. Which which meant in a way the justices were shopping? Yeah, you know, I don't know. I mean, this is a live dispute. This was something that happened. And maybe it just fit the 
perfect parameters of the story. I mean, um, in a way, it was handed to them, as you said. Right. right? It yeah. was appealed. Uh huh. Okay. What has happened to Cole's Waylon? Talk about her life. It's been a journey for her. She described the time between when he was arrested for stalking her and then convicted as some of the scariest, most harrowing months of her life. Mm. You know, he was out on bond, and so he knew that she was had called the police on him. She began not being able to perform unless she could see everyone's face in the crowd. You know, it's tough for a rock performer. Most of the venues are dark. She's one really rough story when she was performing in Dallas during this time. It was about 300 people in the crowd. They were surrounding the stage. They were in front of the stage and on the sides. And three or four songs in, I started to see spots. I got lightheaded. My palms got clammy. I couldn't breathe. I did not have any idea what was happening. I thought I might be having a heart attack. And my bandmate came over and she said, are you okay? And I... I didn't know what to tell her. I played one more song sitting down, and then I just had to leave the stage. So Billy Ray Counterman goes to prison, and she thinks, you know, that's it. She can get all this back. And she discovers that she's been through this trauma, and it's going to take some really hard work for her to heal in this space. Is she performing again? She is, in very small doses and in front of crowds she mostly knows. She ended up leaving Colorado while he was in prison and leaving the full-time music business for a marketing job on the East Coast. She now has two young children, still lives out there. And through the work of therapy and some medication and just what she calls stubbornness, she's clawing to get her music career back. I just, out of pure will, refused to give it up. I said, this is my dream. I don't care how hard it is, how many panic attacks I have to fight through, how nervous I get. I'm going to keep doing it. And I did. And I had a lot of support in that. You know, I had people who would come to shows for only two people. I had a band that would play with nobody there. And I and I got back there. That is singer-songwriter Coles Wayland, whose case will go before the U.S. Supreme Court this week testing whether being stalked might actually be protected speech in some regards. How does she feel about her case becoming so high profile? She does not feel good. She actually feels a little re-traumatized. She doesn't like being the poster child for whether her case is a First Amendment case, you know, after going through everything that she has gone through. And years later... I find out that it's actually not over, that the Supreme Court's going to review the conviction. And I am just astounded. I I cannot believe that this is happening to me again. And that the implications of that are even greater, far greater than they may have been in this first trial that I went through. And after what I went through, and after what my family's had to go through, and considering the clear, long-lasting harm that this has had on me, I just can't believe that anybody would question whether or not this is a true threat. So she's weighing how to be present for all this, like how much to risk going back to a very dark place she worked hard to get out of versus trying to get this story out to the people so they understand how hard it is to be stalked and threatened online. Mm -hmm. What will she do as the justices hear the case this week? Well, she's not going to be in D.C. for the case. I think she was invited and she's not going to go. I don't even know if she's decided whether to listen to the arguments online or whether that would even be healthy for her. She's been extremely limited in granting interviews. She's talked to me and The Washington Post, and that's it for now. So I think she's trying to keep it small, steady, but she really does feel a responsibility to let people know her story and what she went through. 
I understand she wrote a song about this saga, uh, and she shared it with you, Allison. Yes, she has shared the song. It's called Stronger. She's performed it, I think, only one other time in a small crowd, and she hasn't formally recorded it yet, but she did send me this acoustic version. Years go by in fear and joy gets small I'm too tired to sing, play it all With hands that cannot open on a key And a voice too tight to get out a melody But I scrape and I claw Till it makes sense To stand in the face of the violence Cause it would have been easy To fade away I've decided I got more to say Stronger by singer-songwriter Coles Whalen, who's at the heart of a Colorado free speech case that goes before the U.S. Supreme Court Wednesday. Justices will decide whether certain kinds of stalking are protected. Our justice reporter Allison Sherry will be in D.C. for oral arguments in Counterman versus the state of Colorado. Attorney General Phil Weiser will argue that the convicted stalker, Billy Ray Counterman, deserved prison time for his threatening speech against Whalen. A lawyer who represents Counterman himself will argue the other side of the case. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. latest episode of My Story So Far, the new storytelling podcast from CPR, hear personal stories from students and educators in Aurora, Colorado. We pull up to the doje, and I felt like Jaden Smith version two in the making. And I'm like, woo, I'm about to meet my Jackie Chan, wax on, wax off. And so I get my white belt, I get my white gi, and I suit up like this is the Avengers protocol for my first class. Uh, <laughs> my Story So Far. Find it wherever you get podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. How much is a reputation worth? Dominion Voting Systems puts the price at $1.6 billion. And the Denver-based firm thinks Fox News should pony that up in a blockbuster defamation case. 
Jury selection was supposed to start today, but the judge announced a delay late Sunday. There is speculation that Fox News is trying to settle out of court. CPR's Benta Berkland is covering this case, and hi, Benta. Hi, Ryan. We will dive into that eye-popping damages figure, $1.6 billion in a moment. But uh, catch us up on the case overall. How did we get here? So, sure, right after the 2020 election, Trump supporters started claiming that there was massive election fraud and put the blame on one particular company. That's Dominion Voting Systems. And one reason for that was because some of the key swing states like Georgia used Dominion voting machines. So the company really became the epicenter of these false claims of a stolen election. Dominion says conservative networks like Fox News amplified and spread lies about the company. Sydney, we talked about the Dominion software. I know that there were voting irregularities. Tell me about that. That's to put it mildly. The computer glitches could not and should not have happened. Dominion then sued Fox News for defamation, seeking this $1.6 billion. And I think for a lot of us, that figure jumped out because we're talking $1.6 billion. And even though this case hasn't gone to trial yet, a federal judge has already ruled that statements made about Dominion on some Fox News shows were false. If the jury finds Fox liable for those lies, it would then decide how much it should have to pay. Well, gosh, that seems like a major point, Benta, that a judge agreed that Fox News aired false claims about Dominion. So what else does Dominion have to prove here? Well, first, it's not just about Fox airing something false. Dominion's attorneys will have to convince a jury that Fox knowingly was broadcasting false information that damaged the firm's reputation. And also Dominion has to show that Fox News ignored facts that could have disproved those false claims. Dominion argues that Fox News was scared. It was losing the pro-Trump supporters to other more conservative outlets and says Fox knowingly gave a platform to lies in order to boost viewership. Dominion CEO John Poulos talked to CBS's 60 Minutes last year about some of this fallout and the threats he and his employees have faced. People have been put into danger. Their families have been put into danger. Their lives have been upended and all because of lies. It was a very clear calculation that they knew there were lies and they were repeating them and endorsing them. Okay, so this case isn't just financial, right? How do those threats factor into this? Well, what's interesting is that to succeed in court, Dominion needs to show that these hits to its reputation weren't just hard on employees, but actually resulted in large financial losses. Okay. And I talked to law professor Len Niehoff about this. He teaches at the University of Michigan. You're talking about economic damages and economic disturbance. And so emotional feelings, hurt feelings, emotional damages, those kind of things typically are not going to enter into the calculation. So he says making this case for monetary damages can be challenging in any business defamation case because of the complexity here. So you're trying to connect the dots between a business loss and then why that loss happened. These are things that very often can't be proven with mathematical precision. It can be very hard to show that people who didn't do business with you didn't do it for this reason as opposed to for some other reason. And then if the court sides with Dominion on this, the question is then how much money is Dominion owed? 
And is $1.6 billion a remotely realistic amount to ask for? I know Fox News has pushed back mightily against these allegations, Benta. Yes, absolutely. Fox News calls Dominion's claims nothing more than a money grab by its private equity owners. And the big point Fox News makes is that it contends it was reporting on news of the day that's protected by the First Amendment. So these are newsworthy comments by the President of the United States and Trump's allies and supporters. And Fox has also said in recent court filings that Dominion could not possibly suffer the damage amount it's requesting. Fox News says $1.6 billion is, quote, you know, not connected at all to, sorry, I'll rephrase this quote, is, yeah. quote, has no connection to Dominion's financial value as a company. And that brings us back to the number we've been returning to, $1.6 billion. How did Dominion get to that figure? Dominion commissioned a report and in court filings laid out about $1 billion worth of damages. So $16 million in profits, more than $70 million in potential business, and more than $900 million in value. Is there evidence that it's losing business? This is where it gets tricky. Dominion has actually seen a net increase in the number of jurisdictions using its equipment since 2020. And that's according to data from the election security nonprofit Verified Voting. And this nonprofit tracks voting equipment contracts across the country. CEO Pamela Smith says she's not surprised that jurisdictions have stuck with Dominion. Most jurisdictions don't change their voting systems like every couple of years, right? They change them 10 years, 15 years, if they can hold on for a really long time, they will, you know, but it's also hard to predict what happens down the road. And Fox News says Dominion had better than expected revenue last year and is actually flourishing. But in court filings, Dominion lays out multiple instances in which it says contracts across the country were canceled or not renewed, that it blames on the lies that circulated after the 2020 election. Right. And you said they were asking for more than $70 million in potential business that they might have lost. So where where might that be happening? Well, Shasta County is one of the places we can look to. This is a county in Northern California that recently canceled its contract with Dominion over concerns of voter fraud and cited conspiracy theories. Now, this was done over the objections of the local officials who run elections there. And Joanna Franciscate, she's the assistant county clerk. And she says Shasta is a very conservative pro-Trump county. She says after the election, people were angry and easily believed lies about Dominion. But when there's this this distrust that's just tearing us apart, and it's believable. I mean, if you watch some of those videos that people have shared and how it's framed, it's very believable. And she says getting rid of Dominion is a logistical nightmare, a huge cost to the county. The county still needs some machines to allow those with disabilities to vote independently. And she said falsehoods about Dominion have actually put the county at risk of not being able to conduct an election. Gosh, in which the behavior actually might be the thing undermining the election. Okay, is there any sense yet that other counties will follow suit? I mean, I have to think there are probably a lot of deep red places out there that share the distrust. 
I think it's very hard to know whether places like Shasta are outliers or the tip of the iceberg. In Colorado, almost every county uses Dominion equipment. And I asked clerk Justin Grantham what he thought about all this. He heads the Colorado County Clerks Association. He's a Republican clerk and lives in Fremont County, which is a very red part of the state. And he recently renewed the county's contract with Dominion. And he says, look, audits show that these machines are accurate and switching companies isn't feasible. Now you're talking about learning how to use the system, learning how to program the ballots in the election, learning how to just figure out the tabulation and the software and the hardware that would come or doesn't come with it. It's a good reminder that Colorado does these audits after elections and that Dominion equipment, which is in so many different counties, is checked out. Before we go, this defamation trial is not the only legal challenge involving Dominion, right, Penta? Yes, Dominion has another defamation lawsuit against the conservative outlet Newsmax. And there's a former Dominion employee, Eric Coomer, who he's from Colorado. Uh, He has been personally targeted by conspiracy theories. And he had to go into hiding. He lost his job. He's faced threats. His family's faced threats. He has his own defamation lawsuits against pro-Trump media outlets and allies like Rudy Giuliani. And for Eric Coomer, unlike with this corporate Dominion defamation case, juries can award damages for more than just money. Aha, the the emotional toll counts. Yes, that's right. So they could put a price on the emotional harm and distress and these lies and how what it has caused Coomer. So that does give a jury a lot more leeway to pay out what could potentially be a big sum. And in contrast to the Fox case. Benta, thank you so much for the perspective on this. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan. CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkland on the Fox News defamation trial was scheduled to start in Delaware today. Late yesterday, the judge announced a continuation until tomorrow. There is speculation that Fox is trying to reach a settlement with Dominion Voting Systems, which is based in Denver. And Colorado Matters continues into this next half hour with a supermarket merger that some fear won't check out. I'm Ryan Warner. You're at CPR News and KRCC. The Southwest United States has been in a drought for more than 20 years. A big problem for the Colorado River and the people who use it. Parched, the new podcast from CPR News, is about people who rely on the river that shape the West and have ideas to save it. We cannot just allow nature to disappear. Find Parched wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Alpine Bank. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. King Supers, City Market, and Safeway are some of the largest grocery chains in Colorado. And soon, they could all have the same owner. Their parent companies have proposed a merger. And that has some people nervous, especially in rural Colorado, as CPR's Matt Bloom reports. Ask shoppers outside of a Denver King Supers, and you'll find they aren't really following the merger. Well, not that closely. I haven't. I haven't. I don't know how it will shake out. (laughs) 
but it's another story in more rural places like Canyon City. The city has just two main grocery stores, a city market and a Safeway. Many residents only shop at one store or the other. A few dozen of them crowded the small public library here on a recent afternoon for a town hall. I raised two children as a single mom. Sorry. Um. <laughs> on a grocery, workers' income and benefits. Carolyn Mondragon is 64. She wears a Safeway pin on her shirt. It's where she's worked for almost two decades, and she's worried about her store closing, which would leave only one main grocer in town. Prices will rise even higher for essential food and goods. My co-workers and many of my customers are like extended family. This merger will affect all of us. The person leading this town hall is one of the top officials in Colorado, Attorney General Phil Weiser. He says the idea of a grocery merger adds another layer of anxiety for residents already dealing with inflation and a shaky economy. This merger raises a lot of questions and a lot of concerns for a lot of people. Weiser has held several town halls like this around the state as part of his investigation into the merger. He's expected to announce later this year whether or not he'll lead a multi-state antitrust lawsuit against the two companies involved. That's Kroger, which owns King Supers and City Market, and Albertsons, which owns Safeway. As attorney general, I'm committed to hearing from people, to analyzing those issues and making sure that we don't allow a merger to go through if it's going to harm competition. Kroger says it won't close any Colorado stores as a part of the deal. It also says a merger will streamline supply chains and help lower prices to compete against other grocery companies like Walmart. But consumers are already paying higher prices for milk, eggs, meat, and other staples due to ongoing inflation. Costs for groceries are up around 9% compared to this time last year. Sanjay Bhagat, a finance professor at CU Boulder, says a merger likely won't undo any of that. The uh, bar is pretty high to show whether or not mojos actually are beneficial to consumers. He says the amount of price difference you see specifically from a merger will likely depend on how many other grocery stores are in your neighborhood. In the geographical location that you were used to having two stores and competing, now there is no competition. There, I would suspect prices will go up. He also notes that past grocery mergers have led to store closures. After Albertsons purchased Safeway in 2015, at least nine stores in Colorado shut down. Canyon City Mayor Ashley Smith says that kind of business decision can have a big impact on smaller towns. We also worry about jobs, empty buildings if there's store closures, and also choice and variety of products to choose from. Canyon City resident Sharon Ketchum lost her job at a Safeway closure in Craig during the 2015 merger. Afterwards, she moved back to her hometown to work at her childhood grocery store. She worries now history will repeat itself. I've been shopping at this Safeway since I was eight years old with my mom, you know, and there's so many people that are just used to a certain store and their prices and their sales. And if one closes, what do you have? The Kroger-Albertsons merger still has a long way to go before it receives full approval. Federal regulators likely won't make a decision until the beginning of 2024. In the meantime, Colorado's attorney general plans to hold more town halls and conduct a survey online to see if pushing back is the right move. I'm Matt Bloom, CPR News. And the next town hall about the merger will take place in Golden a week from today. We'll be right back with the story of a special place in southeastern Colorado 
known as the dry. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. One of Colorado's crown jewels might not exist, but for a chance meeting on a beach in California. Enos Mills was only 15 when he homesteaded near Estes Park. But while walking on the Pacific coast, he met a kindred spirit, John Muir, a strong advocate for America's wilderness areas, who became a mentor to Mills. After he returned to Colorado, Enos Mills worked passionately to preserve the wilderness around Estes Park. Efforts paid off with the creation of Rocky Mountain National Park in 1915, just a month after John Muir's death. At the park's dedication, Enos Mills said, in years to come, when I am asleep forever beneath the pines, thousands of families will find rest and hope in this park. In fact, millions visit every year. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of National Jewish Health. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It was known as The Dry, a black farming community in southeastern Colorado, founded in the early 1900s. Its story is one of accomplishment and perseverance. History Colorado hosts a new exhibit on The Dry. Years ago, though, it prompted a question through Colorado Wonders. This is Carolyn Sanders. I live in Pueblo, Colorado. I grew up in Rocky Ford, and I had heard of a place called The Dry. I was wondering about that for Colorado Wonders. We found two people who can tell us a lot about this. Retired school teacher Alice McDonald of Manzanola, Colorado, grew up on a family homestead in the area known as The Dry. It's nice to meet you. Thank you. We also have historical archaeologist Michelle Slaughter with us who has done field work in this area. Thanks for being with us, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Alice, your grandmother's family came to the area. This is about an hour east of Pueblo near Manzanola. Around 1912, what is the land like? Well, the land is very flat and very dry. It's buffalo grass, lots of cactus, no trees. You can stand and see for 100 miles. What do you feel when you're out there? Well, it's a joyful place to be. There's always a nice, cool breeze blowing. And if you stand still and listen, you can hear the bugs rustling in the grass. If you look about, you can see a snake maybe sliding along. Rabbits get under the cactus in the shade. And if you are real quiet and look very carefully, you can see a herd of antelope once in a while. Maybe there will be 11 or 12 in the group. Why did your family choose it? as a place to homestead, I mean, a, a place that arid, you know? They didn't realize it was that arid. There were two women who came with uh, George Swink. Uh, oh, wait, when, George, George Swink is the namesake of the town of Swink, I'm guessing. Yes, he is, and also uh, he spent a lot of time in Rocky Ford, Colorado. Okay, so a name well-known in southeastern Colorado. Yes, but it c- is. Continue your story, Alice. These two women came with his family when they came to Colorado. And these two uh, women were black. And they were black, uh, the Rucker sisters. So he had told them they needed to go and find other blacks to come and homestead in Colorado, and they could own a piece of land. He said, you know, so many of them, their families came from slavery, and they came into Missouri and into Kansas, and they were working as sharecroppers. They didn't own any land, and most of them did want land. So when the Sisters came and told them about Colorado. They told them that it was a wonderful place to be. 
and that the soil was rich and just ready for farming. And that's all they knew how to do was farm. So, so was that a lie? Was that misleading them to lure them west? No. George was a visionary, and he had an irrigation system. So when he told them to go and bring the homesteaders in, he had this in mind. However, when the homesteaders arrived, they did not have the irrigation system, and all that they could see was this flat, dry land. And, of course, they were used to trees and plains and streams, and they were quite disheartened. Now, George Swink himself was not African-American. No, he wasn't. Just to be clear, your family coming west, were they freed slaves? Yes, my grandmother's mother and father were freed slaves. It is always uh, important for me to hear how recent, how close slavery is. It might be something we read in history books, but it's really not that far away from us. No, it isn't. It is not. Michelle, you did a project surveying homesteads at The Dry. How many homesteads were there in this area? We think that there were roughly 50 families out there. And with the Enlarged Homesteading Act, which was for land exactly like The Dry, um, land that wasn't easily irrigated, it gave them the option to have quite a lot of land out there. Did it feel like a close-knit community, Alice? It was a close-knit community because they chose for it to be. Now, as far as the homes were, they were some distance apart. But once the people arrived, they needed to help one another, and they needed to relate to one another. So that brought the closeness. Was there such a thing as town in the dry? No, there was not. The intention was to have a town site, and they did have a one-room school. So, like, is there a remnant of the old schoolhouse? What could I see if I were there today? Not a lot. Um, The school has been reduced to a a pile of lumber, but a lot of the homesteads have foundations left, uh, stock tanks and places where you might have had chicken coop or where you would have had horses and cattle. So the cisterns where the rattlesnakes like to live. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, We we learned to kind of give the cisterns wide berth while we were out there. To someone who's not an archaeologist, it doesn't look like a lot. But Mm. if you go out there, especially with someone like Alice, who knew what it looked like when all the buildings were standing, it just comes alive and, and it all makes sense. You've been out there together? Oh, yes. yes. Yeah. They were looking for pieces of glass and items that normal people would just walk over, but they were picking them up, and they were looking at the lay of the land, and they were able to determine where the outhouse had been or where the coal bin had been. Do I have it right that you unearthed toys? Yes, we did, and that is Mm -hmm. one of my favorite things to find. Um, My favorite was a Roy Rogers Sheriff's badge (laughs) that we found on Alice's parents' homestead. Finding something like that really gives you this very tangible connection to that child who was out there. Was that your sheriff's badge? No, it could have been my brother's (laughs) badge or it could have been my son's badge. Our children would come back and visit with mom and dad. So your family stayed in the dry for how long? My grandmother and two of my aunts were on the dry until probably uh, 83 or 84. Okay, so quite, quite recently. That was our immediate family, and they were the only ones who did stay that long. I know they built a dam. They built that dam, and it was ready for watering in 1921. 
and there was a gentleman next to my grandmother who planted a field of wheat. And so they decided, well, they had the dam full, they opened the head gates and let the water come down through the canal and irrigated this wheat field. And it was quite a thing. Everybody came. All of the people that lived on the dry gathered to see this first irrigation of this wheat field. That would have been a big deal, a it was reason a, to celebrate. It was a big deal. However, in 1923, they had the huge flood, and it rained and rained for days and days, and they had filled the dam up to the top. So, of course, with all of the rainwater, it washed it out. And that was the end of the irrigation system. It was very disheartening for everyone, and they never rebuilt it. And from that point on, the people began to drift away because they realized that they were not going to be able to farm. I think that I'm probably the last original drylander uh, living. Okay, the dry. I mean, my guess would be it's called that because it was so naturally dry. Yes. Is that why we call it the dry? Yes, that's why we call it the dry. And people would ask the homesteaders, where do you live? And they would say, south of Manzanola, out on the dry land. (sighs) And eventually they would say, where do you live? South of Manzanola, on the dry. Then eventually, where do you live? Out on the dry. So it became the dry. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And thanks to a question we got through Colorado Wonders, we're talking about the dry. This was a community of African-American homesteaders in the early 1900s in southeastern Colorado, not far from the town of Manzanola. And joining us is someone who grew up on the dry. That's Alice McDonald. Also, archaeologist Michelle Slaughter, who is unlocking some of the secrets. To what extent was this also an escape from racism and the dangers that black folks faced in an America that was still quite hostile to them. I, I think this is very interesting. I'm going to let Alice speak to this, but my expectations going out there were sort of unfounded. I anticipated that there might have been quite a bit of strife between uh, the white ranchers, people in Manzanola, and then the folks at the dry, but it seems like that really wasn't an issue, even though Manzanola had a KKK chapter, and Alice can speak to that. She has yeah, but that was a surprise then for you, Michelle. It was a big surprise. So, so, Alice, speak to those relations, would you? Uh, no, there, there was no strife. There was no racism. The people that came to the dry uh, depended on the white farmers, and they were glad that they had come because they knew they knew how to farm, and they knew they were willing to work. Huh. And so it was a mutual society, if you may. Kind of a symbiosis. Yeah. Yes, and they worked for the farmers. The farmers helped them out. And racism simply was not a problem. It was not a problem the entire time that I lived there and went to school. It is not now. They did have a, a clan. And it was very interesting. Uh, my father had gone to town and had stayed into the evening. And on his way home, his car broke down. And so he couldn't get it started. He said, well, I'll just get out and walk home. But as he walked along, he had stopped at a couple of the farmer's houses where he had worked, and he knew them, to ask them to help him. There was no one at home, so he walked on. And as he walked further out onto the dry, he could see a glow. And uh, he thought, well, what is that? He came over the hill, and there were a large group of men on horseback with their uh, robes and their hoods. 
and their flares, and that was the glow of the light that he could see. And so Dad kept on walking, and one of the fellows on horseback rode up to him, and he said, Harv, what's the matter? Can I help you? And Dad said, oh, my car broke down, and he said I couldn't get it started, and I stopped at a couple of houses, nobody was at home, so he said I decided I would walk home. And he said, well, I'm out here for this little meeting. He said, go ahead home. But he said, don't walk back. I'll come and pick you up in the morning and take you to your car and get it started. And Dad said, okay. Well, he recognized the man's voice. <sighs> and another one rode up and said, who is that? And he said, oh, it's Harv. And he said, does he need help? And he said, I told that help. I would help him tomorrow, not to worry. Your dad was having a conversation with a hooded member of the Klan. Yes, and knew who it was. But he never said the man's name. They did not bother the uh, homesteaders, and they just existed as far as we were concerned. I'm very grateful that your father didn't face danger that night. I'm also mystified as to why the Klan would have allowed that to happen. Because they were not there because the blacks had moved in the community. That wasn't They obviously had been there. They had existed before the uh, group came out on the dry well, they certainly did. You know, there was a large group of Klansmen in Colorado. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Well, that that just underscores your surprise, too, then, Michelle, I guess. Exactly. Historically, that's not what you would expect. Mm-hmm. It's as if history is complicated, folks. It's so complicated. Uh, <laughs> uh, so did you farm as a kid? Do you remember having chores, Alice? We didn't farm. The only thing that you could raise on dry land was Indian corn, maybe. You had uh, good snow, and it rained in the spring. I remember they had, they had a field of pinto beans because everybody went out and picked beans, and, and we had a, a nice herd of dairy cattle, and we milked them, and we sold the cream at the creamery. So, of course, we had chores. We had to milk the cows. We had to herd them out to the grass. We had to ride out in the evening when we came from school and herd them in so we could milk them again. We had pigs. We had chickens. One year, my mother raised turkeys, so we helped her raise her turkeys. And every single solitary day, we hauled water. We hauled water in the morning and put it into the stock tank. We hauled water in the evening and put it into the stock tank because the cattle had to drink. Mm-hmm. If I put you in front of a cow today, could you milk it? Oh, certainly. Is that like riding a bike? You just don't forget how to do it? No, you don't. <laughs> Here's something I don't quite understand. You're you're building all of these farmhouses, presumably. Uh, I know that initially when people moved into areas on the plains to homestead, it wasn't even homes. It was like dugouts. But where would wood have come from for homes? What would you have built with? Well, when they originally came, there was no wood. And that was one of the things that disturbed them because when they arrived on the dry, all they saw was cactus. But those who came in the fall knew that they had to have some place to stay. The people who came from Nicodemus, Kansas, stayed in Colorado. It was another African-American community. Yes, it was. They had lived in dugouts, so they knew that was what they were going to have to do to survive in Colorado. Michelle, just describe a dugout. It's literally what it sounds like, you know, digging into the earth and and making yourself a a dwelling. Yeah, it's like a hole in the ground, almost literally. Exactly. Yeah. It is. My mother's father, when they came, they stopped at the Ruckus Sisters, and they had a dugout. And so they told him, well, you know, 
there's no wood to build a house right now, so you'll have to make a dugout. He said, I am not making a dugout. I'm not a rabbit, and I'm not <laughs> living in a hole. So they never had a dugout. He went into town and found some wood and built two little rooms for his family because he just was not going to live in a dugout. But in other words, any wood had to be brought in. Any wood had to be brought in, yes. I'm just trying to picture what life would have been like in a dugout. It wasn't bad, they tell me. I've never lived in one, but... I mean, I guess uh, it would have been cooler, right? Because it it's subterranean. It was cool in the summer, and it was very warm in the winter. Growing up as a child, there was a, a, an older woman who lived, oh, two or three miles from us. And she did not have transportation. And my mother would take her to town when we would go to do her shopping, grocery shopping. And she still lived in her dugout and was there when she died. She had built three rooms above ground, but she had a, her dugout was still there. We loved going there as children, but she had swept the ground until it was hard like concrete. So the floor was nice. Like, yeah, it was almost like she had polished it. Yes, polished it was polished. It, yeah. it, was, it was lovely. Alice, do you miss it? I'm still near enough now where I live. I live in Manzanola, so yeah. if I want to go out, I you just, go out. I just go. And she still yes. still owns the land. And we still own the land. You drive out there sometimes? Uh-huh. Just sit or what? Just drive out and walk around. My son loves going, and he likes to do running. And he'll call and say, well, I've been out to the dry. Mm. And sometimes we'll just drive out, and if we've had a good rain or if we've had a big snow, why, we'll go out. And it's a wonderful place to go when it's snowed. You can why, why is look that? Because it's just a mass of white, just as far as you can see, it's mm. it's white. And then, of course, you see the Twin Peaks and the Sangres back. It's beautiful. In the distance. Yeah. Yes. Do you feel the presence of your family there still? Well, their presence has to be there. They spend a lot of their time there, a lot of energy there, a lot of uh, life was spent there. And yes. I think if you mentioned the dry... And maybe I'm just saying this as a Denverite, Alice, but I think if you mentioned the dry to 10 people, 11 of them would never have heard of it. Do you, do you think that it's a community that has largely been either forgotten or, or like has flown under the radar? You know, there are people that live right there in the Arkansas Valley. When Michelle and her group came and they did the study, there were people who came from Rocky Ford and from Lahana and from uh, the Crowley County Corridor, and they said, you know, I've never been out here. I didn't I didn't know that. I didn't know this was out here. And they're right there. I don't have to come to Denver to find people who don't know. <laughs> and that was one of the motivators for me with this project is it is just not in the historic record for Colorado. You know, folks just don't, don't know. know. And so my passion is to help people know. So thank you for having us because oh my this goodness. is a, a great way to get the story okay, out. Okay, usually that's my job <laughs> to say thank you for being here. But th- thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure. pleasure. Thank you, Ryan. Retired teacher Alice McDonald of Manzanola grew up in an area known as the Dry in southeastern Colorado. Historical archaeologist Michelle Slaughter conducts research in the area. They helped us answer a question we got through Colorado Wonders back in 2020. What do you wonder about in this state? Send us your questions. CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Meanwhile, History Colorado's new exhibit, The Dry, Black Women's Legacy in a Farming Community, 
is open now in Denver. That is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to my colleagues. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Shauna Lewis. You're with CPR News and KRCC.